Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we pivot to the future. On today's show, we focus on taking politics out of women's health, Biden's first 100 days. Now, January 22nd marked the 48th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's landmark decision decriminalizing abortion. Yet nearly 50 years later, reproductive rights are in jeopardy and more people are demanding reproductive justice, in fact, a reproductive new deal. So what is the status of reproductive health rights and justice 48 years after Roe? Is the constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy a reality today? If so, for whom? Who has COVID-19, the pandemic, impacted most? And how has it impacted women's health and exacerbated existing disparities? What can we expect from the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration in recognizing the threats to the reproductive health care of people who can become pregnant? Now, helping us to sort out these questions and more and how we should think about these issues are really terrific guests. I'm joined by Dr. Carrie Baker. She is a lawyer and grassroots reproductive rights activist in Massachusetts. She is president of the Abortion Rights Fund of Western Massachusetts. Dr. Baker is also a professor in the program for the study of women and gender at Smith College. I'm also joined by Dr. Joya Creer Perry, who is absolutely fabulous. She is the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. She is a thought leader around racism and the root causes of health inequities. I'm also joined by Julia Kay. She's a staff attorney with the Reproductive Freedom Project at the ACLU. She leads the ACLU's litigation challenging the FDA's unjustified restrictions on medication abortion, as well as the project's advocacy efforts to remove outdated laws banning nurse practitioners and others qualified to provide abortion care. And finally, I'm joined by the wonderful Leah Littman. She's an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School, where she teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She is the co-founder of Women Also Know Law and is one of the co-hosts and creators of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome to our Ms. Magazine show. Thank you all for joining us to discuss these very sensitive and often overlooked matters. Now, before I turn to my guests, let's take a listen to the oral arguments from December 13th, 1971 in Roe v. Wade. That's nearly 50 years ago. And the first voice that we're going to hear is Chief Justice Warren E. Berger. And he's going to start the questioning of Sarah R. Weddington. She's the lawyer that represented Jane Roe and Mary Doe in this landmark Supreme Court case. Let's take a listen. We hear arguments number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade. Mrs. Weddington, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The instant case is a direct appeal from a decision of the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas. The court declared the Texas abortion law to be unconstitutional for two reasons. First, that the law was impermissibly vague, and second, that it violated a woman's right to determine to continue or terminate a pregnancy. Although the court granted declaratory relief, the court denied appellant's request for injunctive relief. The Texas law in question permits abortions to be performed only in instances where it is for the purpose of saving the life of the woman. The case originated with the filing of two separate complaints the first being filed on behalf of Jane Rowe, an unmarried pregnant girl, and the second being filed on behalf of Jane and Mary Doe, a married couple. Jane Rowe, the pregnant woman, had gone to several Dallas physicians seeking an abortion, but had been refused care because of the Texas law. 
she filed suit on behalf of herself and all those women who have in the past, at that present time, or in the future, would seek termination of a pregnancy. In her affidavit, she did state some of the reasons that she desired an abortion at the time she sought one, but contrary to the contentions of Athalie, she continued to desire the abortion, and it was not only at the time she sought the abortion that her desire was to terminate the pregnancy. Julia, let me turn to you first. You were lead counsel in Food and Drug Administration versus American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a case dealing with the FDA regulation on medication abortion. Tell us a bit about that case and why is it so controversial? Sure. Um, we filed this lawsuit in May on behalf of many of the nation's leading medical providers, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as reproductive justice advocates like Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. And the lawsuit challenges a Food and Drug Administration requirement that subjects patients to entirely needless COVID-19 risks on top of the normal burdens that it, uh, the, the usual burdens, I should say, that it imposes on patients. Um, so the FDA requirement forces patients who need a safe and effective medication used for early abortion and miscarriage care to make an entirely needless in-person trip to a health center for the sole purpose of picking up a pill and signing a form. Great points, Julia, but what's your response to people who say it's really important that women consult their medical professionals and specifically that they consult doctors because that's a good thing for people who are using prescription medications and who have other healthcare problems. What's the response to that? So these are patients who have already been fully evaluated and counseled through telemedicine or at a prior in-person visit. There is absolutely no medical reason for this in-person trip. And in fact, the FDA does not even require patients to take the pill on site at the health center. They are free to put that pill in their pocket and swallow it later at home. There is absolutely no justification for this travel. Um, and the government is well aware of the viral risks associated with traveling for in-person health care during the pandemic. So, so wait, so, so you're saying you've been working on this case that was just heard by the Supreme Court since May. COVID-19 was alive and, and flaring mm -hmm. all during that time. And so the requirement is that people have to go out, people who are pregnant, women have to go out during COVID to put a pill in their pocket. That is exactly right. And meanwhile, what you have is the government suspending other kinds of in-person requirements for far less safe drugs, including opioids like fentanyl. What? And yet they're, that's right. It is as shocking as it sounds. And yet they are forcing, the Trump administration has been forcing patients seeking early abortion and miscarriage care to take on needless life-threatening risks as a condition of obtaining an abortion. And mind our listeners that now we're up to for over 400,000 deaths due to COVID. I mean, we've well exceeded the number of deaths that were associated with, let's say, the Vietnam War, which was over 19 years. So Carrie, I wanna bring you into this. Um, you are very well versed in medication abortion. You've written about this um, for Ms. Magazine. And recently in an article, you noted that the Trump administration has, has suspended all kinds of in-person requirements for medications that are far less safe than methapristone, including for opioid drugs, just like we heard from Julia, like fentanyl and Oxycontin. And yet they've appealed this all the way to the Supreme Court twice to maintain the requirement of in-person visits um, for those who receive mifepristone. So what's going on here? Well, the restrictions on mifepristone are entirely political. After years of anti-abortion resistance, the FDA finally approved mifepristone in 2000, but placed it under what's called this risk evaluation and mitigation system, which is a drug safety program that tries to restrict unsafe drugs. And under this restriction, they require that patients go in person to their doctors. They don't allow retail pharmacies to distribute this drug. And that's where this restriction came from. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
Mifepristone is an extremely safe drug. It's actually six times safer than Viagra, which the FDA does not restrict and which you can buy on the internet like candy. And so- Wait, 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 wait. It's, 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 so it's safer than much Viagra. Safer. Much, much safer. safer. Much, much safer than yes. Viagra. Yes. Right? It's not going to cause anybody the heart attacks and all those nope. things that we hear about with Viagra. Uh-huh. And men are not required to go in person- Exactly. To a clinic or to a doctor to pick up their Viagra. Yes. It's a misogynist double standard and it's a political double standard. And feminists have been fighting for years to try to remove these restrictions and made some progress in 2016 under Obama, but it's still there. And there's a very vibrant grassroots campaign to try to get the FDA to remove that restriction. And it's high on the agenda for Biden coming in that he not only reverse this um, Trump policy that there's no, that you have to go to your doctor during the pandemic, but also asking Biden to get the FDA to re re review this restriction more generally. So before we get to the super doctor, Dr. Joria Creer Perry, who it just like knocks it out of the park all the time, just so happy that she's with us, you know, help the audience understand a little bit more just how disparate this is what the FDA is requiring, because it's not only that the, the FDA is treating this differently than erectile dysfunction medications for men, but we're also talking about thousands of other medications where they've not isolated it out like this. Like how many is it, Julia? Right. So out of 20,000 drugs that the FDA regulates, this safe, effective medication used for abortion and miscarriage care is the only one that the FDA forces patients to pick up in person in a clinical setting, even though they're not required to take it in a clinical setting. All right, let's bring in the extraordinary uh, Professor Leah Littman. So Leah, what's your take on this? I think it's a troubling sign about how willing the court will be to allow governments to enforce laws that will be very burdensome on women's access to abortion and offer very little benefit um, and actually how far the court will bend over backwards to do so. Um, so the case involved women's access to one of the pills used for medication abortion and the side effects for that pill are similar to over-the-counter aspirin or something like that. Um, but still the FDA was unwilling to weigh the requirement that women obtain that medication in person and sign a disclosure form during a pandemic, during which that the FDA has waived the in-person pickup requirements for controlled substances like opioids. Um, and still the court was willing to allow the federal government to enforce that requirement. And more than that, the court didn't bother to explain why it was willing to do so. Um, the only justice who explained the vote to allow the federal government to enforce that requirement was the chief justice who said he owed deference to elected accountable public health officials. But as Justice Sotomayor noted in her very powerful dissent, no public health official has ever offered a reasoned explanation for why it is good for public health to require women to pick up that drug in person, um, but not so good for public health to require people to pick up opioids in person. More than that, the Chief Justice has also been quite skeptical of deferring to federal administrative officials in other contexts. But here, when it comes to abortion, apparently it's just fine. And I'd like to now turn to Dr. Joya Kirpiri. I've enjoyed working with her at congressional briefings, town hall meetings across the nation, addressing issues involving reproductive health rights and justice, maternal mortality being one of those issues high on the list. And in these recent times, you've had to spend a lot of attention, not just on maternal mortality, but also the attacks on contraceptive access and abortion rights. And we've seen a number of those attacks coming through the last presidential administration and a number of restrictions that have recently been placed on access to abortion. And you've been writing and speaking about how this is rooted in bias and misinformation. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You know, thank you so much, Michelle, for having me and being here. So it's so hard to um, disentangle 
the belief that women cannot control their bodies from all the policies that we see all the time. In fact, at the root of all of these policies uh, is the belief that we are hysterical, right? The word hysterectomy comes from this idea that women are hysterical, that we need someone to oversee our choices, oversee our bodies. So it, it makes, uh, sadly, it does make sense, although it is um, harmful and, and mean-spirited and comes from a, list, a history of legacy of patriarchy and white supremacy culture. It's not surprising that the one drug out of 20,000 drugs that are, are available to be um, regulated by the FDA, the one thing that women can use to control their bodies that they could just stay home, a doctor can talk to them over the phone if they have complications. No, they have to come in in the middle of a pandemic. So it's actually true to the, it's a continuation of this history and legacy of a belief of devaluation of people of color and of women and anybody who is not fit into the norm or the little cycle of, you know, um, cisgendered white male mid forties. Everybody else has, has to beg to be seen as fully human and ask for things like, can I just be treated where I can have my doctor talk to me at home and send me the medicine at home? And we send birth control pills. Um, I, you know, in fact, we know for sure I long ago, one of my first times ever testifying was trying to get um, the HPV vaccine to be on insurance companies. And the one way Viagra was covered on insurance companies, but HPV vaccines were not. And the one way I could get the Congress, the, um, it was state legislature in Louisiana to agree was I said, well, you know, HPV causes penile cancer. So you need it for your penises. Oh, then magically they listen to the conversation. So we have to get to a space where the people who have power look more reflective of the people who, um, who, who need services, like more women, more people of color, more gender non-conforming folks, because they're going to continue to produce harmful policies like these at the Supreme Court that say, out of all these drugs, you have to come in person, even though we know there's no medical reason, we just don't trust that you'll do the right thing. And that's at the core of it. We don't believe you. We don't trust you. We don't think you will be capable of not giving it to a friend or selling it in the black market or whatever. And meanwhile, we know we have a much higher rate of substance use disorder. You know, fentanyl is much more complicated and we're worried about that. But yet we cannot see women as being capable and fully human. When you mentioned the testifying that you did in Louisiana, if our listeners could only see the reaction that we all had on screen here. And yet we know it's true, you know, put a penis associated with it and something that harms men's sex drive. Legislators then are gung ho to make sure that there's access to whatever it is that will relieve men from any kind of discomfort. And, you know, it's interesting, the conversation that we're having, because, you know, as I think about things like dialysis, right? Uh, dialysis can be very complicated and yet people can do dialysis at home, right? They can plug themselves into a dialysis machine, sit there several hours while fluids are draining out of their bodies and circulating back in. And yet the bottom line of this is a sense that women are so uh, lack such capability, capacity, mental capacity that they can't take a pill on their own, right? I mean, there's so much behind that. I, I want to deepen our conversation just a little bit because we are in a period of COVID and it has revealed so many underlying institutional and infrastructural inequalities in our society. And so what does that mean then when we're talking about people having to go out during COVID? Because reality is that there are disparities in terms of people who've contracted COVID and people who are dying from COVID. So what does this mean, let's say, for Latinx women or for Black women, Dr. Joya? Well, we know that people of color are more likely to be um, impacted by COVID. And we were, and honestly, even when they were calling the, the Chinese virus, we knew that racism was already setting us up, right? So we were going to be left out from getting resourced, from getting tested. And so many people, this is another example of we're already dying at our homes because we're not getting tested, because we're not getting, when we go in to say we have a complaint, if we get to the doctor, we're more likely to be sent home without being treated and evaluated. So then you bring in this rule that in order to have a safe abortion, you have to go into a Provider. Well, you already don't have access to paid leave. You don't have access to transportation, equal pay. So all the other infrastructure things you need to be able to go somewhere to receive medical care. Right. So that's one of the reasons the United States has the worst outcomes in the world when it comes to maternal health. because We don't participate in any of the things that the other countries that have good outcomes do, like equal pay, paid leave, child care 
to paternity leave, you know, simple things. So when you add on COVID, the infrastructure and the lack of investment in social support and social safety and well-being and health and joy comes out really strongly. And you see that people, you're going to see birthing people, you're going to see pregnant people, people with the capacity for becoming pregnant, not going in to get the pill because they already, when are, how are they going to get there? They already are nervous about what's happening with the pandemic. We're already nervous about transportation or shutting things down, shutting things, opening things. So it just creates another burden, another layer. And the opposite is happening with everything else. With prenatal care, we're saying, hey, we, we don't care how many times you come in. We can just do it over the phone. We can call you. We're revamping the entire system for prenatal care, for postpartum care, for all these other infrastructures. But yet when it comes to abortion, magically we tell you have to now come in. That is the opposite of what we're seeing from every other kind of care. You mentioned dialysis. We're doing all these things virtually, teaching patients how to take their own blood pressures, teaching patients how to weigh themselves, teaching patients how to do all these things. That'll be a, If we can continue them, they'll be much better for the future for infrastructure, that we all have diversity of how we can enter care. It doesn't mean that everybody should not come in, but we do need diversity. People always needed an opportunity to, to receive care telephonically. So I'm wondering, Julia, then, what are the implications for the Supreme Court's decision for access to other forms of reproductive health care? Does it mean something broader than medication abortion, what should we learn or take away from this? And it was a six to three opinion divided along um, along conservative liberal lines in the Supreme Court. So how do we understand this case for the future? The court's ruling in this case sends a chilling signal about the future of the right to abortion. They didn't give an explanation for their ruling, which is typical when a case goes up to them in this kind of um, the particular process here where uh, a party is just asking the court to overrule the lower court's decision and immediately reinstate something. So it's not uncommon for them not to issue an explanation. But when you look at the facts of this case, the overwhelming facts of this case showing that this restriction provides zero safety benefit while exposing patients to life-threatening risks the only possible explanation for the court's ruling is to make it as difficult as possible for people in this country to get an abortion when they need one. We should absolutely be frightened by the implications for the future. And I'll just underscore that right now there are at least 15 cases uh, relating to abortion access that are either already pending before the Supreme Court or are one step away in one of the federal appellate courts. Um, so this court will have plenty of opportunities, including in the near future, to, um, to further restrict access to this essential health care. So I want to ask you a question about the case, and then I'd like to hear from, from any of you, each of you, about what some of those cases are. So in this case, Justice Roberts did say, well, the standard that we have from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the undue burden standard, is really not the one that we should apply in thinking about this. What is he doing in, in saying that? And how should we be thinking about Justice Roberts given in June medical, he sided with the liberals on the court, and there were some who were hopeful saying, oh, he's going to become the new swing vote, he's going to be kind of Kennedy, and Kennedy was not necessarily a friend on women's rights or reproductive health and rights, that's so well over, so much overstated. So what's, what's the skinny on Roberts coming out of this case? So let me start by talking about the Louisiana decision this summer um, that you mentioned where the Chief Justice sided with the liberal justices to um, uh, to block this incredibly harmful law in Louisiana that everyone agreed served no medical purpose and everyone agreed would have shut down all but one abortion provider in the entire state. So the Chief Justice uh, joined the liberals in striking down that law, but he made clear that he did not want to do so, that it was really reluctant and that he was doing so only because four years earlier, just four years earlier, in uh, a case called Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt out of Texas, the Supreme Court had considered the literally identical law and had struck it down as an undue burden. And so the Chief Justice said, well, stare decisis, we don't want to flip flop, it's the same law and that's why I'm, you know, sort of reluctantly uh, uh, agreeing that this law must fall. Um, so that was then. 
now we're in a position where even if the chief justice had joined with the liberals in our case because of the change, because of the replacement on the court um, of uh, you know, the loss of, of Justice Ginsburg and now the, the presence of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, it actually wouldn't even have been enough if the chief justice had sided with um, the liberals in our case, which is truly terrifying. But what I also want to highlight is the chief justice's reasoning in our case, he, he actually is the, the one member of the majority who explained to some extent uh, why he ruled the way he did. And he said, well, as I've said before, I believe we should be deferring to government officials who are responding to the pandemic. But that is exactly backwards because it is undisputed in this case that this was not a judgment call of a, a reasoned judgment of public health officials grappling with this public health emergency. It is undisputed that the FDA never even considered the impact of these in-person requirements in the context of the pandemic and that they have not revisited the justifications for this in-person requirement in years. So that explanation by the chief justice simply is not credible. That's not what was going on here. Well, you know, one could also think about this, this kind of will pivot to what um, the legislator or legislative body say. You can think about that in the context of race um, across any number of areas, you know, most immediately, you know, the case of Loving v. Virginia comes up, right? I mean, that's decades ago, but again, you see across so many areas, um, the ways in which local municipalities justified racial discrimination of all sorts. And by the way, listeners, I highly commend to you to take a look at uh, Polly Murray's book on race laws, which Thurgood Marshall said was the Bible of the civil rights movement. Because what's so shocking there are the myriad ways, the hundreds of ways, the thousands of ways, it's, it's, it's surprising that there was so much attention put to finding ways to discriminate against Black people. Can't play checkers, can't go bowling, can't be in the swimming pool, can't be in the park, can't rent here, can't eat in this restaurant, can't be in the taxi. And then the impositions on businesses too. If we catch you with a black person in your taxi and it's not the taxi that's certified for black people to be in, you can be fined and all of that. How is anybody going to take any of that seriously? And isn't it the court's role to be scrutinizing of unjust laws, Julia? certainly should be their role. Um, and it is deeply troubling that we have not seen them fulfilling that obligation during the Trump years, you know, as a broader matter, I think about the Muslim ban and the refusal to consider the president's clear statements about why he was imposing these restrictions and who was the target of it. Um, and I think it's, it's deeply concerning. So some might say this sounds like political capture when we're talking about the FDA. And can you explain to the audience what that means, the political capture of an agency? So political capture refers to the idea that an agency is beholden essentially to politics, who the elected leaders are and who they appoint to head an agency. Now, the idea of political capture is nothing new. Um, in fact, some people think that political capture is a good thing in as much as it allows presidents to appoint people to head agencies who share their priorities and will carry out their policies. Um, and in some ways, that might be a silver lining of this decision. You know, perhaps Joe Biden will appoint someone to the FDA who will weigh the in-person requirement for the medication abortion um, now that you know he is President Biden. Um, so political capture isn't always a bad thing, um, but I think it is troublesome when it flies in the face of so much science, data, and needlessly risks people's health and safety. So what's your sense about what the Biden administration needs to do um, during its first 100 days, there's a lot of weight that's put on that, a lot of hope. Have you any ideas about where you think that the Biden-Harris administration should be going when we're thinking about matters related to reproductive health rights and justice? 
I think when it comes to reproductive health and justice, um, you know, some of the most important things they can do actually concern political power um, and uh, voting rights. You know, what will make it easier to protect access to reproductive rights and justice in the future? If you make it easier for people to vote, um, I think that that is, you know, an important rationale for trying to do electoral democracy reform and voting rights reform is to enable, you know, the country that largely supports, you know, majority of the country supports access to abortion to enable that majority to have their preferences actually reflected in, you know, our elected officials policies. Um, so voting rights is definitely, you know, one component of that, um, you know, of course, addressing the pandemic and access to the vaccine and coronavirus relief is an important part of that story too. Um, but the third thing that I would flag is of course the courts. Um, it's likely, it's possible, um, perhaps, you know, maybe I just hope uh, that we might have a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Um, and I also hope that the Biden administration will move quickly and decisively um, to appoint uh, young judges who share, you know, the faith in democracy and, you know, believe in public health uh, to the federal courts. Your sense that the Biden administration should engage in uh, deep exploration of reshaping the courts? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And what might that um, look like? I, Have you thought about what that should look like? So at a minimum, they announced they are going to have a court reform commission. And I believe that that commission will be considering, among other things, um, the idea of term limits on Supreme Court justices or the federal courts, the idea of altering the kinds of cases that the federal courts might hear or jurisdiction stripping, the idea of expanding um, the Supreme Court or the courts of appeals or the district courts, the idea of establishing commissions you know, to decide who gets nominated or appointed to the courts um, or the idea of just developing a pipeline to ensure a robust, diverse federal judiciary. Um, those are you know, different kinds of federal court reform uh, that might be on the table. So, all right. So, so I'd, I'd like to hear from, from each of you, whoever wants to jump in. We're decades uh, past row 1973, and it's a seven to two opinion. Five of those in the majority happen to be Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who writes this opinion, is nominated to the court by Richard Nixon. So before we get to what kinds of drama is happening at the state level with regard to abortion rights, what has happened? I mean, you think about it, Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, was the treasurer for Planned Parenthood. His son, George H.W. Bush, who before he became president and was a member of Congress, shepherded a Title X through Congress, which provides reproductive health care for the poorest of Americans. That's when we hear about breast cancer screenings, cervical care screenings, all of that. That was the work of George H.W. Bush and others. Nixon signed it in a law saying this is basic common sense. So for those who you know, believe, well, this is just the Republican position, that is actually not the case. The Republican position was very different. So Carrie, Dr. Joya, Julie, what happened? What happened, Carrie? What happened? The Republican Party got in bed with the evangelicals, basically. And it was connected to Nixon's Southern strategy. As the Republican Party began to recruit Southern whites, they also began to align with evangelicals and uh, assumed an anti-abortion platform in 1980 with Reagan. And, and, but, you know, just more generally, the Federalist Society has hijacked the courts. It's been a very long-term um, uh, uh, strategy to take over the courts. And I think it directly in response to the expansion of rights that existed, that, that developed from Brown versus Board of Education on. And they, um, as a result, they, um, uh, you know, targeted the courts to try to pack the courts with right-wing justices that would no longer affirm rights. And that's why I think that we have got to turn to legislative bodies and we've got to turn to the states, because it, unless we expand the Supreme Court and can convince Biden to, to back that, we're stuck with a court that's terribly um, anti-civil rights, anti-abortion. And while I think that, you know, Julia, you need to keep on fighting the fight, um, we've got to, we can't fight on their ground. We've got to find a new way. And, and, you know, the rise of telemedicine abortion and self-managed abortion and people 
calling organizations like Aid Access Abroad and getting doctors abroad to prescribe this medication and send it to them for $95. I mean, you know, it, it, we've got to have a, a total revolution of abortion health care in this country and, and function on a totally different playing field, I think. But Dr. Joya, what has happened? I mean, you have the history of Louisiana and Louisiana and Texas have been considered the deadliest places in the developed world to be pregnant. What's happened? And can you tell us a little bit about how race matters and class matters to this discussion? Well, and the, and the, th the beauty of it, reproductive justice allows you to look at the entire framework. So when you think about even how the wording of Roe v. Wade, and I think about the um, hope, uh, the, 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 the key versus hope, the, the, the most recent case of the Supreme Court, there's been so many. The language, I was so, as an OBGYN, you know, I'm not a lawyer, an OBGYN, I was like, I'm confused as to how all these states are coming up with these new laws around six weeks. I don't get it. Like, what, what, what is this? So when you look at the original language, it was the viability, that language around viability. And the, really the part that got me as a, as a practitioner is it said the state has a right to protect the fetus. So back then, when you think about who was in charge, the guys were like, yes, we're protecting from these hysterical women. So when the baby's viable, we're gonna all come together and say, but if she's decided to have an abortion and kill this baby, this viable baby, then we need to make this law. But viability was never about women's choice. It was not about women having reproductive uh, autonomy or believing that we were smart. It was the state still believed. And this is where rubber meets road because the OBGYNs agreed clearly. It was like, yes, once you get the viability, we agree with you. Well, now when they went down to six weeks, you see my fellow colleagues who are OBGYNs like, wait, so the state has to protect the fetus from me as a physician? Now you're talking about my credibility. You're talking about me, not just those crazy- You're talking about my law license, my medical license. Fine when you were complaining about those crazy women, we agreed that they need control and nobody, somebody needs to tell them what to do. But now you're saying that me as an OBGYN, I need control. So this underlying undergirding belief still that women don't know how to control themselves and need someone to tell them what to do is under all of these policies. So what happens is it's not just the evangelicals. It's white dudes who are OBGYNs who said, yes, of course they don't know how to do this. It's rural Southern folks who are like, well, you know, we are super, um, we believe that some people just folks don't know how to handle themselves. And then, you know, people of color do not go to the doctor like they're supposed to. They don't go, they don't follow instructions. And so we need to make sure we have laws and policies that control how many children they have, when they have children and their access to contraception, fertility treatment, right? We don't even talk about fertility treatment. Every other country that has better outcomes than us pays for infertility, in vitro fertilization on public insurance for everybody. We can't even get it on private insurance. Well, we don't even have insurance, you know, for everybody, right? So, so let's just let's be clear. We have a government still trying to fight against congressional legislation and the Affordable Care Act. So, yeah. So the underlying racism, the underlying devaluation, the original sin of believing that one group is high hierarchically, that a human value of um, of hierarchy of human value based upon skin color. Until we undo that, all these things are going to continue. Oh, so you know, you're just opening up a rich and ripe discussion right there, because then that brings us into eugenics and Buck v. Bell. All right, so so I'm going to try to like come back to that because this is getting deep, and this could be a five-hour episode instead of just an hour. All right, so pin in that. Let us remember that because Julia, I'd love for you to share with us just what else is in the pipeline uh, with regard to. Um, rollbacks, attacks on reproductive health rights and justice. I mean, they're just some very um, arcane and harmful and cruel laws that have been proposed and but for the ACLU stepping in, Center for Reproductive Rights and others, we would see what kind of cruel laws already already in existence in some states. What, what do they look like? Right. Well, there is no limit to the creativity of um, folks who wish to restrict access to abortion care. Um, but really the most terrifying and, and sort of straightforward trend that we saw in recent years, um, very recent years, just the last, you know, last year and, and 2019, is outright bans on abortion, um, including very early in pregnancy, including at points in pregnancy when most people don't even know yet that they're pregnant. And it is not a coincidence that these outright bans were being passed all across the country, um, precisely at the time when President Trump was making new appointments consistent with his vow to only appoint justices who are 
uh, uh, committed to overruling Roe v. Wade. So there was this response that we saw from many states saying, ooh, maybe this this looks like it might be our shot now. And gosh, don't we want the, the name of the case that ends up overruling Roe v. Wade? Don't we want Alabama in that case name? Don't we want Kentucky in that case name? There is this um, you know, they're all elbowing each other to try to to try to be the state that um, that succeeds in banning abortion outright. And so though many of the cases percolating up to the court right now are actually outright bans on abortion. We're not even talking anymore about the laws like like we saw in Louisiana and Texas and many other states that purport to protect patient safety. Of course, everyone knows that's not really what they're here to do. They're, they're designed to shut down clinics. But the, the masks are off. The legislators don't even feel they need to pretend anymore that their goal is anything other than uh, uh, eliminating this right for people in their states and in as much of the country as possible. And when you're talking about outright bans, you're also including no exceptions for rape and incest, right? I mean, do these bans make exceptions? Some of them do and some of them don't. Um, but of course, we, you know, it is, it is, it is all outrageous. It is not, you know, of course, if these bans had exceptions for rape and incest and life endangerment, some, some do, some don't. It is still, they'd still be crazy and they'd still be, uh, you know, they'd still be counter to the constitutional right that's already been established. Exactly. And, you know, I think it is important to emphasize here that virtually all restrictions on abortion disproportionately harm people of color, low-income people, uh, young people, people living in rural areas. There are certain people who are undocumented. There are certain communities that, like in so many other, you know, aspects of our society, the, 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 they bear the brunt. They bear the harm disproportionately. Yeah. So, so then I, I want to, it's Dr. Joya. So how do you respond to some who are saying, and this includes Clarence Thomas on Supreme Court, right? Saying that, well, you know, uh, abortion is black genocide. That when he hears about um, black women having abortions, that what black women are playing into is white supremacy. Black women are playing into the supremacy that white people have to do away with black people. And there are some people that say, well, oh, because Justice Clarence Thomas is black, he must have some inside scoop on this. So can you tell us, does Justice Thomas have some inside scoop here? Or is that just from Crazyville? Once again, if you can see my face. No. <laughs> I have never thought Justice Thomas was speaking for Black people. That's just, all, we can go. Anyway, but the point is, um, the, so the, the truth is, just like I was talking, we were talking about earlier with eugenics, we have to be honest about the racist history of reproduction and reproductive oppression and stratified re reproduction in this country and this world that still exists today. So until we can be that honest and be really clear and that we're not running from that, that yes, there has been a history and a current position where people believe certain people should have babies and others should not. That's a fact. However, if you are not investing in me having equal pay, childcare, a safe neighborhood, don't talk to me about my access to abortion. Like you're the hierarchy of needs. Everybody's heard of, you know, hierarchy of needs. The thing that I need is food, water, shelter, power. Abortion is going to be on that list because you are not providing any of these other things. So to come to me and say black and brown people are having more abortions without acknowledging we've never invested in black and brown communities. We've hyper policed them. We've mass incarcerated them. We've hyper sexualized us. All of these things then saying, but, you know, but it's mass genocide against black people. You know what's mass genocide? Healthcare is not a right. Education is not a right. Police violence. Um, militarizing the police, all of those things, that's an um, genocide of the black community. So talking about abortion in the same sentence is not, once again, being intellectually honest. So no, um, it is not, Clarence Thomas does not speak for black people, especially does not speak for black women. Let's talk about Anita Hill right quick. So it's important for us to really reevaluate the messenger and the message. It is easy though, to pick up that trope until we in the repro space are really honest about the history of racism in our space and the current racism in our organizations and the way people are treated. Because that, until we have that honest conversation, they're always gonna be able to come back at, they're just trying to kill you, they're just trying to kill you. We have to say, no, 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 we value black and brown women just as much as we value white women, middle-class women, it's all rural women, we're all here together. We're not trying to have one population decreased and say that one group needs to be controlled. All of us deserve justice and joy. So all of us deserve the full range of reproductive options from the abortion pill to access to in vitro fertilization. So we want it all. 
Yeah. So let's talk then a little bit about that history because it would be so easy for people to not digest it. I mean, let's be clear that even in 2021, that and we're just weeks off of an insurrection with people storming the Capitol, breaking windows, crushing officers, um, people engaging in behavior resulting in five people dead, you know, all of um, wearing anti-Semitic shirts, you know, clearly this is white supremacy that was deeply associated with this by what people wore and what by, by what people said, right? You know, one doesn't have to make it up because this is what people adorned on their bodies and what they carried into the Capitol building, right? Not since 1812 had there been um, that level of desecration of our nation's uh, capital. But even with that, what's amazing is that people really don't appreciate and have an understanding about the ways in which Black women's bodies have been put through the ringer in this country through private subordination and public subordination. So tell us just a little bit about that, because when people get all tangled up and, well, we're just trying to protect Black women, have they ever tried to protect Black women and Black women have autonomy over the control of their bodies? I'm still waiting for that. I am definitely still waiting for that. But you know, the most egregious recent moment is at the border, right, in Georgia, where Black women, brown women, people who were immigrants or, or their uteruses were removed. They had surgeries without consent. They were not told what was happening. Um, and so this is a continuation of the devaluation of women of color um, and Black and brown bodies. We were seen to be purposeful and useful for creating bodies for workers, right? So that's legacy and history is not just during slavery. Like if you look at who the essential workers are today, the people, if you go to the grocery store, which I go once a week, who you see are black and brown people. I would love to see what does a middle-class white dude look like bagging some groceries? Cause you just don't see that, right? So we've accepted and normalized that our bodies are to be used to produce workers. And it's part of the narrative of this history of around the globe, even the global South, I hate that term, the global South versus the rest of the kind like they're producing the goods, the raw materials. And so we're worried about creating more babies in that place. We just want the raw materials. Dispensable and disposable is what I'm hearing from you. So Carrie, I want to turn to you about eugenics because people probably say, okay, I've heard that term on the show in this episode and they may connect it to Germany and then rightfully so because there was a eugenics platform in Germany. But can you help our listeners to understand that actually the Germans learned from the United States and it was actually based on US law that the Germans picked up. What, what, what's going on there? I mean, the Nazis looked around the world for models for the kinds of laws they might adopt. They looked to places like South Africa and the United States and they said, the, they saw that the most the worst laws were here in the United States. As a matter of fact, they thought the United States was had gone too far. And some of the things that they adopted were actually moderations of U.S. laws. But, um, you know, we have this deep history going back to slavery in the United States. And these attitudes and these laws and these practices um, have deeply shaped how we function as a country. And the roots of anti-abortion, you know, uh, or, or just controlling women's reproduction are in slavery and the roots of sexual assault and the toleration of rape in this country are in slavery. The racist roots of rape culture and of the reproductive control of women go all the way back to slavery. And in, until we engage with that, you know, it was the point at which it was socially acceptable to take away control of somebody else's body. Right. We that was at the foundation of our country with slavery and and with regard to women, it took particular forms of reproductive control at the time, forcing women to produce children Um, later coercive sterilization, preventing them from having children, or more recently, like with the war on drugs, punishing them if they had children, now taking their children away through the foster care system and the prison industrial complex. There's that deep history that impacts not just women of color, it impacts all women in different, very different ways, though. And unless we engage with that directly and the legacy of that history, we're never going to have reproductive freedom. So what does it take to get to the space where reproductive freedom, reproductive uh, justice 
it becomes a reality in, in our country. And, and just on a scientific note, because we, we have a scientist with us and, and Dr. Joya, you know, the Supreme Court has abandoned a, a care for science. You see a little bit in whole woman's health, right? The turn to science is what Justice Breyer relies on in that case and the record that's built by the district court, uh, which is very helpful. And you, you see that in June Medical too. But there are a couple of things that are worth us noting because the politicization of reproductive health care has been done by people who don't have an interest in uh, protecting and promoting women's health. So for example, um, an abortion, terminating a pregnancy, um, actually is safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. A person's 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term. That's just basic. It's like a starting point, Maybe right? Put the money, the child cost, all that other stuff, right? Right, exactly. Like you're just 14 times more likely to die by choosing to carry pregnancy to term. Like I'm a mom, I chose that, but you know, I was choosing something far riskier for my health in choosing that. Um, and at the same time, for so so long, the World Health Organization has determined that an abortion is sa as safe as a penicillin shot, as safe as a penicillin shot, and yet the rhetoric that surrounds uh, pregnancy termination, you'd think it was the most ridiculous, heinous decision that a person could ever make when that is just inconsistent with scientific evidence. Any commentary on that? Yeah, I just, I just feel like it's so important to think about power and control, because really at the core, that's where all these conversations come from. And controlling women's reproduction through abortion, through controlling who can have access to it, who can be, who can fund it is a core argument. And if you think about the right to life, the March on Life or whatever that happened a couple of few years ago, and they were all up here in DC marching around pro-life and then a, a elder in the native indigenous community started chanting and they switchly, quickly switched from their pro-life uh, mantra to racist things they were saying to him, right? Because the same power and control and desire to control certain groups of people, it's the same folks, it's the same entities. It's easier that the, the oppressions love each other. So that's why you can see gender oppression coming with racial oppression. They just kind of, it's all the same, um, it overlaps. So until we undo that, until we say we don't believe that any group should be oppressed and we have to undo the devaluation of people we're going to keep seeing it pop up so many times in our movements we stick to one thing like we're only fighting for this one part and then you'll see the same way that they went from um, talking about pro-life to um, talking about uh, the, the anti-indigenous uh, folks in the same bodies the same folks in the same moment until we understand that that's how they see this that they are fighting for controlling all of us, they want to control women, they want to control people of color, they want to control everybody. And they have been able to create policies like around that. It's not new controlling reproduction. It's not, in fact, I tell people all the time, science was colonized. The fact that race is even part of biology was is racism, right? We That's not- That's science. a social construct. Exactly. Yeah, at the beginning of this show, people might've said, well, this just sounds slightly conspiratorial, but then you all have been breaking it down left, right, and center. And I'm sure now people are like, that's not conspiracy. That's just real attack over and over again. And it's, and it's a consistent attack. And again, if we were to go back to history, we would think about the foundations of our country, right? Maybe Julia, right? Where here's a nation that gets to decide what equality will look like. And it decides after coming through the cruelties of Great Britain that equality matters, but it's only going to be for landed gentry men, right? This is a nation that could have decided, oh, women get to be equal. Why not? It's a nation that could have decided that, you know, coverture is a bad idea, you know, meaning, you know, married women becoming the property of their, of their husbands. It could have been decided that domestic violence is a bad thing, but rather domestic violence was accepted so long as you're beating her with nothing thicker than your thumb, hence rule of thumb. These are the histories that connect to reproductive health rights and justice. And that's the whole point of, you know, what you were mentioning earlier, Dr. Joy, about there being a framework of reproductive justice to understand this all. And when we use that, we see everything. Yeah. And I, I guess I always bring that up because I don't want us to lose sight of, yes, Trump, this was a lot these four years. And yes, he did a lot of things, but I lived in Louisiana. 
we have had lack of access to, to abortion in Louisiana in my lifetime. I had friends in college who had to put together money on a credit card to go to Texas to have an abortion. So this idea that Roe v. Wade now is going to is under attack as if this is new, it frustrates me. It's, it's the idea that Trump is not is this aberration frustrates me. So I just want to be clear, the history of reproductive oppression is the history of this country, is the history of what we've exported around the world. And this idea that the abortion pill, you have to come in to the doctor to get it, is not necessarily surprising to me because it actually feeds along with what we've always done, which is try to control women's reproduction, control people of color, hide, helm, all of those things. What would be new is for us to stop doing that. That's what would be actually surprising. Like if we really said, Women, if we had never, because if we said, we don't even really need Roe v. Wade, women just get to choose for their bodies themselves. Right. You just get to, exactly. You just get to be a, a person. A person and have full autonomy. And have full autonomy. Oh my and God. go seek medical care when you want or a, a midwife or a doctor and peace and blessings. Exactly. Right. But, but we didn't get peace and blessings. Right. So what does it take? What does the next era to get this right? What does it take? Is it going to be litigation? Is it going to be at the policy level at the state level? What does it take, Julia? Well, I comfort myself even when I'm feeling bleak about being an impact litigator when the courts look the way they do and it feels like the evidence and justice and compassion are no longer the deciding factors. I comfort myself by remembering that litigation is just one of the tools in our toolbox. And um, when you focus on this particular case, this issue, the Biden-Harris administration can fix this on day one. They can fix this on day one by issuing guidance, making clear that they're not going to enforce the in-person requirements for mifepristone for this medication, um, at least during the public health emergency. And of course, we're also calling on them to reevaluate the FDA's entire package of outdated and medically unjustified restrictions on abortion so that, you know, even beyond the pandemic, um, patient access is dictated by evidence, not politics. But so, you know, I think it is incredible that this litigation was able to secure an injunction for six months. For six months, patients were not subject to this dangerous, burdensome requirement. And also during that six months, we sort of had a, uh, we have the real world evidence that expanding access in this way, that expanding access through the combination of telemedicine and then uh, the, the medication being mailed or delivered to patients, it works. It is safe. It is effective. It is patients like it. Patients are hugely grateful and relieved Um not to have to make an entirely needless trip, not to have to take time off work uh, and lose wages, not have to arrange the childcare and pay for transportation and do all of this, jump through all of these hoops, uh, you know, if even assuming they can, uh, uh, not have to do so for no medical reason. So I'm hopeful that the fact that we saw this play out for six months makes it even more um more likely that the Biden-Harris administration does the right thing here. Uh, uh, and so, you know, litigation is part of it. You sort of, you shift your advocacy, you start, you, you start with the litigation and you get as far as you can. And now we're shifting our strategy um, and we just keep fighting. All right. Well, we've come to that part in our show. We, we could continue this on. We, we, we do need to, and we will have more episodes. We look forward to having each of you back on the show Here's a question. What's the silver lining? What, 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 what can we look forward to that um, speaks to hope in light of all that we've just talked about, which for many people might seem um, to be rather than hopeful, um, kind of um, scary. So I think what's hopeful to me is I think telemedicine abortion is revolutionizing abortion health care in the United States. And I think in part that's because of the pandemic. In part, it's because of that injunction that Julia referenced that for six months, people in many states could order the abortion pill and consult with their doctors online and through the mail. And, you know, going back to Michelle, your point about stigma and misinformation about abortion, I mean, Part of what the anti-abortion movement is doing is trying to make abortion seem dangerous and scary. And what telemedicine abortion does is it reveals abortion as simple, safe, convenient, and inexpensive, right? I mean, right now you go to a doctor and you pay five to $700 to get, to get um, the abortion pill. 
through telemedicine, you can get it for $200 and it's easy. And you can get it even earlier than, you know, if you have to have an ultrasound, you have to wait till six weeks. But now with the new no test protocols that have been generated as a result of the pandemic, people realize they can take it the day after they miss their periods. And so all of this, I think, can transform people's consciousness and awareness about what abortion is and how it can be easy and simple, but we've got to do that public education. We've got to make people understand what the abortion pill is, what telemedicine is, and how it doesn't, you don't have to go and spend an entire day at a clinic and spend $700 and have to go back and make another visit. Um, that it can be simple, it can be easy, and it can be affordable. And I think that's the silver lining. We've learned this, and I think that's the future of abortion health care in the United States. I think the general positive take home I would give is this. Uh, We have the chance to fight fights that we can win now uh, with the Biden administration in place. Um, There's every reason to think that the Biden administration will seriously consider waiving the in-person requirement to obtain medication abortions. There's every reason to think that the Biden administration will respond to calls to diversify the federal bench and appoint justices who are unapologetic champions of reproductive justice. Um, So I think knowing that we are faced with fights we can win um, should give us the energy to, you know, fight those fights. Dr. Joya, silver lining. Silver lining is we have a new administration that's starting tomorrow. It's Martin Luther King Day and let freedom ring. So we asked for the new administration to have a White House Office of Sexual and Reproductive Wellbeing. We recognize that we created the structures around um, control and planning and eugenics inside of the White House, inside of federal policy. It was baked into, so just like we talked about um, um, legal remedies, we need policy inside of the government. We need from White House through Congress to undo the harms of control, eugenics, devaluation, to invest in equal pay, to invest in including abortion as part of a right, invest in including fertility treatment as part of a right, including sexual education, sex or your reproductive organs. Most people don't even use them for having a baby that people have just can have sex and just for pleasure and joy. And that's part of your rights. So we look for the opportunity for this new day for a new administration to really build on reproductive and sexual well-being. That's right, because we haven't even gotten to sex education and the fact that that's also been robbed of young people. Whoo, Julia, silver lining. Well, I talked a lot about um, the states that are hostile to um, access to abortion care um, and how they capitalized on what they see as new opportunities in at the, at the Supreme Court level. But what gives me hope is those states that reacted in a different way, those states that saw um, the loss of protections at the federal level or the, the our, you know, the imminent loss of protections at the federal level and said, we need to step up for the residents of our states. And, um, you know, for instance, Massachusetts just passed a fantastically progressive and important um piece of legislation to expand access to abortion care and remove uh, unjustified barriers. Um, and that was also a direct response to, um, to really the, the Justice Barrett's confirmation. Uh, New Mexico, New Jersey, a number of other states are considering similar measures this legislative session, and we're hopeful that we'll see that kind of change enacted. And last year, in the past two years, we saw huge progress in states, including uh, uh, New York and Illinois and others. So it would not be accurate to say that this is, that everything's going backwards, that, um, you know, it's all about the losses and it's all about the um, the fear of the future. We are also seeing huge progress in certain, uh, on certain issues and in certain areas. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank my guests, Carrie Baker, Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, Julia Kay, and the fabulous Leah Littman for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to mass incarceration. Don't forget about the women. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe as we do that women's voices matter, 
that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think about our show. And please support independent feminist media. And if you're so inclined, feel free to engage with us at ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com. That's ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Maddie Ponce, Roxy Zal, and Mariah Lindsay. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. And we're so grateful for the assistance of Oliver Hogg. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.